Okay, welcome to Parsha Podcast. We're back at it. And we're going to be talking about not necessarily the Parsha. There's so many holidays at this time of year. We're going to focus on the upcoming holiday of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, or as some people have called it, the Day of Atonement. We become one with Hashem. So Yom Kippur is obviously a very rich day. It means a lot to every single Jew. And it's good to take some time to just analyze and learn a little bit about the meaning of the holiday and the depth of the holiday so we can appreciate it more. Yom Kippur is basically coming to ask us a question. Who are you? Who are you really? There are superficial ways of answering the question, who are you? So just to get things started, I'd like to ask the participants who are joining us live today, Thank you for joining. Can you please give us a definition, an answer to the question, who are you, in a very superficial way? Don't give me a deep, rich answer. The most superficial definition of who are you that you can think of. Like I am my physical being. You're what? I am my physical being. You are your physical being. Okay. Right. You are your very superficial, like in this world, Mm -hmm. physical world. I'm me. I take up space. Right. Right. Malika, did you want to say something? Well, I guess uh, I kind of have a similar answer. Um, I'm. Here in three-dimensional world, right, and uh, uh, yearning right. for yearning for a uh, uh, world to come. Okay, good. So that's that's a that's a technical definition, relatively superficial, and of course we can always go deeper, and you know another another layer deeper might be. Um, by your relationships. I am a brother or a sister. I am a son or a daughter. I'm a father or a mother. I am a friend. Um, you can define yourself by your occupation. I'm a student. I'm a lawyer. I'm a business owner. I'm a hustler. Whatever it is. But you can go deeper and deeper. Yom Kippur is calling us and asking us, what is the deepest possible definition of yourself that, you can, that we can find? And that's what we're going to explore today. So if you can open up the sheet on, uh, on, the, on the top of the page there. Um, so the first source we've got there reads as follows. This is a quote from the Talmud. Talmud and Tractate Shavuot, Daf Yudgimul Amud Aleph, page 13a. It is taught in a Braita. Braita is a cousin of the Mishnah. Uh, teachings of the rabbis that were not included in the Mishnah. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi says, Rabbi Yehuda the Prince taught for all transgressions that are stated in the Torah, whether one repented or whether one did not repent, Yom Kippur atones. In other words, Yom Kippur is such a powerful day that regardless of whether you did anything to earn it, by virtue of the fact that you are alive on Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur has this power and it, and it brings atonement for every single Jew, regardless of whether they earned it or not through their repentance. That's Rabbi Yehuda's view. 
following quote, you have an, a dissenting opinion. The rabbis disagree, and they say, Yom Kippur atones only for those who repent. There is no doubt awesome power in the day of Yom Kippur. On that, everyone agrees. The question is, is that power accessible and available to everyone, or do you have to earn it with prior repentance? The rabbis say you must earn it with prior repentance, and then you get this prize of the power of the day itself. And Rabbi Yehuda says, no prerequisites necessary, just show up, the day itself has this power of repentance. Now, it makes sense, the rabbi's position makes a lot of sense, because let's take a, let's take a moment to analyze how teshuva, how repentance works in the first place. On a very simple level, a person commits a sin, violates a law of the Torah, does something he should not have done, something that is self-destructive and destructive to the world around him. It violates God's will. Okay? Now, he realizes that what he did was wrong, and he engages in a process of experiencing pangs of regret. That regret and remorse has the effect, psychologically, of tearing him away from that sin, which he may have done with a lot of enjoyment, but once you have that regret, that enjoyment is disassociated from yourself. It's detached from you. You've removed yourself from the sin on the emotional level. And that experience of regret cleanses your soul, cleanses your psyche from having that kind of engagement and connection to the act of the sinful act that you did. And from that point on, we believe that God will forgive you and and you can move on. And so it makes sense to say that atonement can only happen after you've done your efforts, you made your efforts in repentance. To do something, to have that kind of change in the relationship without doing any teshuva, without doing any emotional, psychological work, seems to be a bit ridiculous. And so the question becomes, how can it be that Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi will argue and say that the, uh, the power of Yom Kippur atoning is there for you, whether you repented or not. Imagine the guy, he did not do any repentance, he hasn't, he, had, he hasn't felt any remorse or regret. Yom Kippur comes along, and he's just unilaterally granted a reprieve, he's granted a renewal, he's forgiven, he's cleansed. I mean, it's not even fair. How can this work? without him doing any teshuva, without him doing any work. So in order to understand this, we want to explore three levels of a person's psychology and the relationship that a Jew can have with Hashem that exists on these three levels independently of each other. So level number one is a practical, sort of technical relationship where a Jew can establish a relationship with Hashem by doing mitzvahs, by being in a state of submission to Hashem, being ever ready to follow His commandments, and by doing so, you're, you know, you're a good Jew. You're doing the right thing. And so on that level, you have that relationship with Hashem that's built on your behavior. You do the right thing, you have a good relationship. You do the wrong thing, you don't have a good relationship. 
And by the way, this can also apply to our other relationships as well. Whatever we're going to talk about here can really apply to, to all of human relationships too, pretty much. The second level, second level of the relationship a Jew cultivates with Hashem is a little bit beyond behavior. How does that work? This is a little bit more of an inter internal emotional connection, not so much a practical behavioral one. The emotional connection is, uh, is expressed when a person does something wrong, when he commits a sin, and the regret and the remorse start to build up. That is already itself an expression of a relationship with Hashem. And of course, when that's followed through with the process of teshuva, of repentance, which involves primarily regret for your mistakes, re regret for your sins, and a resolution to never do them again, then on that level you also foster a relationship with Hashem, which is a little bit, a little bit deeper than the behavioral level relationship. Because at this level you're able to go beyond behavior. Even though behavior wasn't up to snuff, all is not lost because you can always catch up, so to speak, and override your mistakes with this process of teshuva on the emotional level, which obviously will have to express itself in behavior to be really, you know, effective. It's level number two. And then you've got a third level. The third level is called the essential level, the level of the essence of the soul. We all have behaviors and even emotions that are beyond, outside of the essence, the very point, the very core of who we are. They're all expression. Your behavior is an expression of yourself. Your feelings are an expression of yourself. They're not the essence, they're not the core, who you are. And on this, when it comes to the third level, the level of the essence, it's at this level where we say that a Jew is a part of God. That every soul is a part of God, which means that you might change the form, but you can never change the essence. For example, if you go to, the, you go to Home Depot and you buy a large block of wood, you can chisel and chop and sand and paint. Whatever you do, it will only change the external form. It will never change the essence of that block of wood being wood. The fact is that it's, it's wood. You can never change that. You don't have the ability to change that. Wood will always be wood. Um, whatever you do will affect it on the external level and its appearance and so on. And so too, the essence of the soul is godliness, is divinity. That is what the soul is. That is what each and every Jew is. What happens later is another story, but at the essence level, this can never be changed. This cannot be affected by behavior one way or the other. You can't make it better with good behavior, and you can't make it worse with bad behavior. Now, what does it mean when we say that the essence of the day, Yom Kippur itself, atones? The power of Yom Kippur itself brings atonement? It's very simple. All through the year, on a regular day, regular months, throughout the entire year, this third level, the essence of the soul that goes beyond behavior, beyond expression, is really buried in our subconscious. We don't really engage with it. We don't have any contact with it. It's not playing a role in our lives, it's not a factor. What happens on Yom Kippur is, this level of the soul is once a year 
is expressed and revealed and is allowed to shine into our lives, allowed to shine and radiate into our behavior, into our feelings, and so on. <clears throat> and because that's the level that is now becoming conscious and, and tangible and apparent, from that level, atonement is a given. Because on that level, nothing ever changed. All the behavior that you ever did was only on a superficial level. At this core essential level, your sins don't exist. Your good deeds also don't exist. Nothing of your behavior exists at this level. It's just that this level is usually not part of the calculus in living our daily lives and going about our business. But when it comes to Yom Kippur, this level, this aspect of our relationship, of our, of our soul, comes to the forefront. We don't do anything for that. It's, that's just a, a, a result of the fact that today is Yom Kippur. And from that point, the relationship with the, with the, between the Jew and Hashem has always been strong, will always be strong, and atonement and renewal can spark out of that level. So the superficial definitions of who you are as a physical being um, or as defined by your occupation, or as defined by your relationships. These are all superficial relative to the ultimate, the deepest definition of who you are. The deepest definition of who you are is a soul, in a shaman. As the saying goes, you are not a physical being with a spiritual experience. You are a spiritual being having a physical experience. Who are you really? At the end of the day, deep, deep down, you are a soul. You are a neshama, which is a, a direct part of God himself. What are some of the ramifications of this idea? I want to ask you to consider what are the, what are the <clears throat> outcomes now that we understand who we really are at the deepest possible level. What difference does that make? Therefore, what? If I am a soul, therefore, what do you think? So while you think about it, I'll suggest one or two. But I would still like to hear from you. So keep thinking. One ramification of this idea is that it is never, ever hypocritical to do what's right. It is never, ever hypocritical to do a mitzvah. Why does somebody feel that it's hypocritical to do a mitzvah? Why does somebody feel that he would be a great hypocrite to go to shul or to eat kosher or to put on tefillin or to light Shabbos candles or any mitzvah at all? because they contrast this good deed with their prior behavior. They say, look, I know who I am. What they're saying is, I am my behavior. I know who I am. I behaved in a very sinful way yesterday and last week and last month. And so it's completely out of character for me to do this good holy deed. That would be basically saying that I'm a good holy person and it's just not who I am. Let's be real, let's be honest. And it's, it's a good faith effort at being, you know, emotionally, intellectually honest. The only problem is it only takes in the very, the most superficial level of a person's identity into account. And I would agree, based on that superficial level, a mitzvah is sort of hypocritical. It, it's very much at odds with how they behave the rest of the time. But once you understand that who you really are as a soul and the behaviors are only at the very superficial level of your identity, 
then it's never hypocritical to do a mitzvah. All that mitzvah is is an expression of your much deeper identity. And you could even argue a much truer identity. Behavior will come and go. Truth stays forever. So what's true? That which lasts forever and does not change, that would be the essence of your soul, the deepest part of you. And from that perspective, a mitzvah is never hypocritical. It's just an expression of who you really, really are. Mm -hmm. If you want, you can even say it's an expression of the second level, of the teshuva level, where you snap out of your behavior and you correct yourself. You know, if you wake up late, I don't know anybody who ever said, um, you know, it's 9.30, I was supposed to wake up at 7 o'clock. Oh, darn, I woke up late. I guess in order to be honest, I have to stay in bed. Because clearly, I've been sleeping the whole time and must remain sleeping. Nobody argues that. You wake up late, you got to hustle, you got to move it, but you wake up. And so anytime we're doing something good, you know, per the second level, it would be akin to waking up. And again, not hypocritical. So do you mean like positive and negative ramifications or like outcomes of this thinking? I'll take whatever you got. What do you think? Well, like, like I've realized that recently, right? That what I am is the soul and my body. It's like, I am me. When I say I, I don't mean just the physical elements that make up my body. Right. You're not referring to your liver. The power that gives my body life, right? right. Um, Consciousness. Which, which is the soul. Right. Right. Um, and then, so, like, when I, when I realize this, I stop chasing, like, I still do from time to time, right? Because I'm a human, right? But I started realizing that just chasing... Uh, physical momentary pleasures is not the thing that gives me sort of true happiness. It's not the thing that brings peace to my soul. Right. Whereas doing things like mitzvahs, right? Like let's say giving a donation, mm -hmm. right? These are things, actions that will, wait, I can't hear you. Always a good idea, by the way. Continue. Yeah. But the, these are actions that um, connect my soul to, to God, right? Right. Uh, so that's in a way like that's my soul's one, part of its mission mm -hmm. in this world is to do good right and mm -hmm. bring good absolutely if that makes sense um, so another ramification is once you understand this breakdown of level one level two level three is to realize that your worst mistakes only occur at level one similar point to what I just said but a little bit of a different angle Realize that without denying the horror of your terrible, terrible, evil sins and mistakes, they only took place at the most superficial level of your identity. They did not take place at the emotional level or at the essential core level. So there's lots of room for, for optimism and hope and repair because you did not cause deep structural damage. It was a fender bending, you know? Go get it straightened out. It's not like you took out the engine and threw it in the lake. Mm -hmm. So don't beat yourself up too much for your mistakes and for your sins. When you, when you realize that it's just at level one, you can find some, you know, hope and, 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 not, be, and not be too down on yourself.
because there's a lot in you that's still very good that wasn't affected by your mistakes and by your sins. Another point that comes out of all this is that when a person feels guilty and they feel embarrassed or ashamed or upset at themselves for what they've done, that's a very good sign. It means that their second level is very, very healthy. It means that they're able to look at themselves objectively without justifying everything that they've done, without being defensive, just to be objective and analyze your behavior and say, you know what? These are some things that I did that were wrong. And I don't feel the need to cover up for myself. I don't feel the need to justify and excuse myself to make myself feel better. I can live with this truth. And, but then the reaction is, if you're honest, the reaction is regret and remorse and, and so on. And those are very, very healthy signs, very, very healthy feelings. It means that you still have your morality. You still have a relationship with your soul and with God. However, the, the, the caveat is that they cannot be the constant flow of thoughts going through your mind. Um, thoughts of regret and remorse and even a little bit of, you know, beating yourself up have to be done in a very controlled way at certain times. Primarily, the end of the day, the Shema before going to bed is the prime time for this. The ending of any period of time, such as the end of the week, um, there's a custom that the end of the month is a, a miniature Yom Kippur. Every end, the last day of the Jewish month is a miniature Yom Kippur in Jewish tradition. Time for reflection about the whole month. And of course, the time of year that we're going through now, the end of the previous year, the beginning of the new year, is obviously a time for this kind of reflection and remorse and the good resolutions that come out of it. But just make sure that it's a controlled burn. It should not be something that dominates your thinking all the time. You can't be thinking every single day, I'm a doofus, I'm an idiot, why did I do that? That's not going to be very helpful. You're going to lose your momentum, you're going to lose your, your, uh, your moxie. You won't be able to fight back. Okay. We're gonna wrap it up here with um, one final teaching back on the source sheet. Maimonides writes that um, the halacha follows the opinion of the rabbis. So that means that you must do some teshuva in order for your Yom Kippur experience to hit home. Um, and at the same time, just to, to close out with a, a reminder of how powerful Yom Kippur actually is, there's the verse in the Torah that describes what would happen when the Kohen Gadol, the chief priest, would go into the holiest room in the temple in Jerusalem. And he only went in there once a year on Yom Kippur. And the Torah says that when he goes in to perform the atonement service in the Holy of Holies, nobody else should be in the tent of meeting until he comes out. Nobody else can be in the area. And the Talmud Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud comments and says, not even, when we say nobody can be there, it's not even those who are described as having the facial appearance of man, which is, the, which is the description given to angels. Not even angels are allowed to be in that area. What does that mean? It means that this essential level that we're talking about, the essential level of the soul, is something that's unique to human beings. It's unique particularly to the Jewish people. It's a symbol of the inherent bond, the absolutely unshakable connection that the Jewish people have with Hashem. And so it's beyond even angels. It's beyond even high, super, high you know, supernal spiritual beings 
can't have any access to this level, this relationship. Therefore, they can't be there. It's beyond them, so to speak. This is beyond just being holy and good. This is about the essence of who you are. The essence of who you are is a soul. And what a soul is, is literally a part of God above. And in that perspective, nothing can ever change. You can ignore it or embrace it. And on Yom Kippur, we are given the opportunity to embrace who we really are, to acknowledge who we really are. And our job, our only job after that is to allow it to seep into our behavior. We should not feel hypocritical in adding the mitzvah. We should not feel odd or awkward about embracing who we really are. It's time for us to not really be bothered if we're the only person doing it in our social circle. Other people will follow. And who knows, maybe by you taking this Yom Kippur very seriously, you will be giving social permission to the people in your social circle. They'll see, oh, it's okay to be a little bit more spiritual and serious and, and go deep into these topics, into these issues. Because look, he or she is doing it. That means I can do it too. So <clears throat> all your friends and family may be waiting for you to show up this year with a new appreciation for Yom Kippur, um, an enhanced um, engagement in Yom Kippur, and by doing so, there will be a ripple effect throughout your entire, your entire social circle. I want to wish everybody an easy fast and a meaningful Yom Kippur, and may we, be, may, may we merit to, to really feel this, to experience it, and most of all, to bring it down into our behavior, into our lives, and even, even <clears throat> when there are dark days, we should remember that, that moment when we really felt it on Yom Kippur to give us hope and strength in the struggles that will come. And everybody should have a gemar, chetimah tovah, signed and sealed for a great new year, healthy, happy, successful, full of growth, full of all good things and all blessings. You're very welcome. Any questions? No questions? Oh, I see, Rafael, you wrote a question. Why do we fast on Yom Kippur? Yeah. Well, the simple answer is because the Torah said so. But the complicated answer is, is because we are basically trying to um, rise above our physical beings to a very high level. And um, part of that is detaching ourselves from daily physical behaviors like eating. It's not the only thing we don't do, right? There's eating and drinking, um, wearing nice shoes. So leather shoes are out. I, I didn't ask for the rest. <laughs> You're going to get it anyway. <laughs> and we're not allowed to have marital relations with our spouse. We're not allowed to use any kind of lotions or perfumes. And all these abstinences are there to foster greater spiritual awareness, um, to not be distracted by the needs of the body, and that we can focus, focus completely on the soul, the essence of the soul, and, uh, and have a powerful Yom Kippur. All right. Thank you very much for joining. We'll be back next week. Uh, actually, no, next week is Monday. Monday is Yom Kippur. So next week, it'll probably be Tuesday at noon. Um, just for next week, and then after that, it will be every Monday at noon. So thank you for joining. I hope you enjoyed.
and we will now go to edit post-production and get this out, the, out on the podcast. See you later. See you. Bye-bye. In post-production, I was listening to the song Lemancha, and it's a beautiful song taken from the prayers that we say before Rosh Hashanah. And so I've added it now as a bonus track to the podcast. Enjoy. Everyone wants to know where I wrote this niggin. In the coziest place in the world. Where there's a fire of truth burning at all times. The only place in the world that you could plug yourself in and recharge and recharge and recharge. Behind the gate basement I remember it was during Ella one night seder. I was learning in Silver Spring. I think it was a Thursday night. And I opened up the sliches Oh, 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 oh,
Did he die? Did he die? Did he die? Did he die? 